This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Sorry, I'm just so very excited for this episode because our guest this week is Seth Meyers, former head writer of SNL, current host of Late Night with Seth Meyers, which recently celebrated its five-year anniversary, and all-around good dude. Over the course of my career, I have been fortunate enough to actually interview Seth more than like anybody else. I interviewed him six months into his gig as host of Late Night. I interviewed him at New York Comic Con a year after that. I spent a day with him a week after the election, following each step of how a closer look comes together. But one time, we just talked for an hour about Lonely Island Digital Shorts, and that was like the entire story. But this is the interview I was most excited about while preparing, because we'll be talking about Documentary Now, the show of pitch-perfect documentary homages he co-created with Fred Armisen and Bill Hader. This is partly because I, I really love Documentary Now, which returns on February 20th on IFC, but more so having it as the focus of an episode allowed me to really talk to Seth about writing. Because deep down, that's what Seth is, a brilliant comedy writer. The jumping off point for our conversation is the Juan Likes Rice and Chicken episode of Documentary Now Season 2, which, if you can't tell by the title, was a parody of Dear Dreams of Sushi, where in place of a Japanese sushi master, there's a man who perfected chicken and rice on a mountaintop in Colombia. If it's not the best thing Seth has written, as we talk about, it's at minimum the most personal. The scene we're about to play comes early in the episode after we establish the insane lines Juan, played by Hector Elias, goes to prepare his signature dish. In it, we learn how Juan gets his chicken, and we establish the character of his younger son, Arturo, played brilliantly by Fred Armisen. Juan and Arturo speak in Spanish during the episode, and since you won't be able to see the subtitles, we dub their parts into English. Also note, Bill Hader plays the critic giving a talking head. I highly suggest watching the whole episode if you haven't, but if you have not, the interview won't be hard to follow. Seth's the best. So, without further ado, here's the scene from Juan Likes Rice and Chicken, written by, you guessed it, Seth Myers. The butter isn't even the most unique of my father's processes. That would be the chickens. We're talking about a man who is 80 years old and yet every day goes to the farm and picks out the chicken he wants. And then he has the farmer take the chicken and set it in a pin. At which point, Juan gives himself exactly five minutes to catch the chicken. He catches the chicken, there is chicken on the menu. But if he doesn't catch the chicken, he believes that faith is spoken and wants the chicken to live. This is the biggest fear about Arturo, that he will change this process. Because Arturo is afraid of chickens. Yes, I am afraid of chickens. When I was five years old, my father brought me to chase my first chicken. But what the farmer didn't know was that the chicken had a brain disease called pollos locos. And what happened was that when I lifted it up, this is what it did to me, that crazy, angry chicken. I still have a dreadful fear of chickens, but it is my duty as his son to overcome this. 
My other son, Diego, was never afraid of chickens before he passed away. Diego isn't actually dead. We are here with the writer behind the clip you just heard, Seth Myers. Thank you for being here. It's great to be here. <laughs> Uh, if you don't dodge me for perspective, I thought it'd be good to start with SNL just for a moment to sort of talk about your history of writing parodies. Yeah. You've written, you wrote some parodies for the show. The ones that I know, you did the Girls Blurda yeah. thing. You did the Lincoln Louie thing. I did, yeah. Or if you have any other examples. But sort of what is your process when you're writing parodies for SNL? But don't mention History of Punk because History of Punk is so directly tied to Doc right now. Well, I don't know if... I had a process for him. I didn't do them that often. When Louis hosted, it was right when Lincoln was out. Mm -hmm. I even remember my original thing was Louis was Lincoln's dirtbag brother. Mm -hmm. And then Eric Kenward, who is a producer at SNL, came around and I told him what I was working on. And he said, I will tell you there's a lot of Louis is the dirtbag <laughs> version of yeah. sketches. And so that made me go back to the drawing board. And, you know, it basically, uh, you know, I can never remember how anything occurs to me. But <laughs> sure. once I realized, oh, yeah. doing an episode of Louis that was Louis as Lincoln would just be a, you know, it was a perfect vessel. You know, it was already as a show a perfect vessel for comedy. So then to layer in the idea of, of Lincoln as a stand-up comic. It was not a thing you particularly found yourself doing that much? Do you have No, it's interesting how little I'm right now being able to pull back and think of other parodies I did. I'm sure when this is over, I'll Thank email you, you uh, seven to ten other things. Well, I'll edit in seven to ten if you do email Yeah, me. but it was, I mean, I think the ones you mentioned, which were, you know, do feel a little bit, certainly more like documentary now, which is the uh, Louis Lincoln and, and the girls was the fun of matching the style and trying to match the way people talked for those, would you rewatch them, or do you feel like you had a sense of the language of both those shows? Those that was a case where I I have felt like I knew the language of the shows. So it was, I was never really good in the short time frame of SNL to actually research how a thing was enough to be able sure. to parody it. Yeah, smash cut to documentary now season one has ended. So you have conversations about what to do if you're going to do a second season. Yeah. You know, from what I heard, it start, you knew you wanted to do something with a food documentary, which quickly takes you to Jiro as the, yeah. sort of the biggest food documentary last uh, however many years. Why did you want to do food? What did you remember in that sort of just beginning moments? You're like, that will be the thing that we wanted to do. You know, Reese and Alex, our directors, are really good at coming to the table when we start a new season telling us which gaps they feel like we haven't filled yet. And so, yeah, food was a big part of it. And we talked about uh, Hero. We talked about Chef's Table. And a Hero was a documentary that I just genuinely loved as well. And so it became this very natural jumping off place of, okay, that's without a way to look and that'll be the style. And then there were, I remember we, you know, the alternate version that we talked about wasn't something so, you know, because obviously we ended up in a place where it was so simple yeah. as the comedy came from the simplicity. Yeah. The other version we were talking about was it was a restaurant that was, we I, we were going to call it dumb food. And it was just all the food was dumb. But it was people coming and being very serious about yeah. how dumb it was. You so know, it would be like, um, you know, like popcorn calzones. Mm -hmm. And... We were laughing really hard talking about dumb food, but we always try to think, like, what's the version that lines up best with what we're trying to do with Documentary Now? And that just kept feeling a little bit more as though you wanted to see someone as 
with Christopher Guest skills do that. Yeah. And yeah. Then, I mean, that is more of a, like a satire of food culture than this one ends up. Yes. The, your version in this is you have the two, the couple that goes to this restaurant. Yes. And them as people are your, are your entire of the dumb food universes in those people. Yes. Had you had experience in these types of restaurants? No, but I did. You know, in the end, we wanted it to look like a restaurant you'd want to go to. And my wife's really good when we travel. I think that I am one of those idiots that thinks, what's the most, what's the five-star place? Whereas my wife is always of the mind, no, find the place that nobody knows about that is like good street Mm -hmm. food or where do the locals eat? And so even though the menu uh, at at Juan's is really dumb, you do, I think when you look at it, you do want to eat it. In a real world, if it was really that good, it could be a one-star Michelin restaurant. Yes. (laughs) So three is crazy, but like, it's not, you you had the vocabulary of how people talk about food like this, which is like, oh, it's this experience and the simplicity, blah, blah, blah. Like that, I think, the non-comedy language of the, of the show is like probably the hardest part because it's so boring to write, but you were able to do it. Well, I think we all, I think when you lay down this really strong uh, like undergirding of getting the non-comedy language right, that's the thing that allows you by minute four, minute <laughs> seven to take sort of wilder leaps yeah. because you've built this really strong infrastructure. So after you're like, okay, we're, we're going to do it, what is sort of the next step is everyone rewatching? Are you, I? I no. are, there, are there brainstorms? Like, how do you sort of just get to what happens after they're like, okay, we should do a food parody? Who is the one being like, what? And then how do you sort of land on? I think by the time we, and again, we did one, like a one day retreat with everybody. And I think by the time we left, we knew the menu and that was it. And we also knew, I should say, which was a really, like, yeah. going back and, and rewatching it, the thing that I'm always so happy about is that it's in Spanish. And so we realized we had this unique opportunity that one of our two actors at the time could speak Spanish. And so it was really fun to realize that just a skill that Fred had would make this episode seem so authentic by doing a thing that was true to him. (laughs) It was authentic to him. How did you land on the menu? Like, were there other food specifics? I think what's nice is it's like, both humble, but not something so humble that you're mocking a culture. Right. <laughs> well, again, I think I would pretty happy eating chicken and rice most nights. Yeah. So it was there was no mockery intended. I there Fred had done some weird musical sketch that Mulaney I think had remembered, and then Fred remembered that it was about. I think it was something maybe a banana and a cup of coffee, like it was a, a yeah. sort of motif of the episode. And Fred was sort of some South American guy who thought that was the perfect meal. And so we sort of used that as a jumping off point. And then it was, you know, what could sort of fill in for the sushi? What would be the 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 sort of main protein that yeah. would be uh, produced? And then we just sort of ended up on chicken. Because the rice will f- be the rice. Yes. I also should say chicken and rice, which is very simple. Yeah. They can also either look really good or really bad. Yeah. Like, so there was something about, oh, chicken and rice seems really boring, but we've all seen a bad version of it. And we also knew that Alex and Reese could shoot it in a way that it would look like chicken and rice you'd really yeah. want. So then you have the bra- the one day brainstorm and then it is determined that you would write it. Yeah. So what are you doing next just to outline it? 
So rewatching Hero a bunch of times, there was a uh, the chef's table that I would say was the one that had the most influence on this was the Francis Mallman because there's um, a lot of like burying of of, yeah. of food and like a man, wrapping like, a fish. In the, yeah, yeah. And so uh, just rewatching and then trying because you know the the difference between most sketch writing and what you get to do with documentary now is you get to actually have characters yeah. that have a resolution to their story and so it was figuring out you know which part of hero were important and how to strip it down enough that you could sort of have a arc to it and then also have uh things in it that were you know comic which and for you is the brothers yeah the family part of hero was always the part that was most interesting to me like i my takeaway after i saw it was i want to eat that food and also i think this family dynamic is fascinating yeah so you you mentioned the father and son stuff so the general line of this question is how autobiographical do you feel like this is in so much as you have a father yeah. and you have a brother and you and your brother do both pursue the same thing for a living and your dad, though, doesn't. You do describe him as the funniest. Yeah. Uh, the funniest Myers. I think like anything, like one, one, you write something, you're in it. How much do you feel like this reflects just sort of your point of view on that stuff? This might be the most autobiographical <laughs> thing I've ever written. <laughs> and I didn't realize it till I, well, I might not have realized it till I finished writing it. Mm-hmm. Like the family part's a big part of it. And I think that, that ultimately this is a story about the difficulty in pleasing someone in your family. Yeah. But also I come from a family where both that's true and I also am 100% confident that my family would be there for me. So it's not like, I don't have like an exacting father yeah. who shows me no warmth. I have <laughs> an exacting father who's incredibly warm. Mm. So that was part of it. But I think the part that in the end I think is the most autobiographical to me and not even realizing until I finished it was that idea of people who are uh, perfectionists versus people who are just trying to get better. Yeah. Um, because I've worked around people who are, and I think, you know, one of the things is that, uh, Juan is, uh, gifted yeah. and Arturo <laughs> is trying to be oh, better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like, you know, again, the, this incredible, uh, life and comedy I've spent, I've been surrounded by people who I believe are more gifted than me. Like visionary type people. Yeah. And, and like you, people who are my friends, yeah. but you know, you, and you know, with them being your friends, the more time you spend with them, you realize, oh, they're not working harder than me. They're just genuinely gifted. Yeah. And uh, there's a time, you know, there are times in your life where you can be incredibly resentful of that, but there are also times where you realize, you know, maybe my path is just being lucky to be around gifted people. You learn from them. Uh, you also learn you're never going to have that gift in the same way, but you can work really hard and just try to be a little bit better every yeah. day. So in Jiro, there's an older son and a younger son. The older son, by tradition, takes over for Jiro, and the younger son gets to open up a slightly more relaxed version of it. Yeah. Is the general thing. I watched it last night. So, But in your version, obviously you have to explore that. How did you sort of land on what is the comedy version of that but still tells the same story? It's I mean, documentary now is so weird. I will say the episodes I write, there's like five silly things in every episode, and then everything yeah. else is just a small heighten. Yeah, yeah. And so Diego's Fun Restaurant was this ability to, like, also it was really important. Like, Diego's Fun Restaurant wasn't a bad restaurant. And it was like one of my favorite things is that you see the couple who went to Juan's earlier, they're also there and they like it. Yeah. But they're taking pictures with them. They're taking pictures. <laughs> they're really happy. And, Part of it isn't judging one over the other. Yeah. You know, that, uh, and again, if this is autobiographical to 
if you can lay this out to the world of comedy, oh, there's you know the perfectionist place, uh, the comedian's comedian, <laughs> uh, and then the other side is the place that people also have a really good meal, but you know it's not as exacting. Yeah. But you know, uh, you know, one of my favorite things is that Skittles is one of the, the sides. Well, you could have a topping of Skittles. The joke that we played establishes sort of the, the central conflict that is Arturo's journey. <laughs> it's so funny to talk about seriously about this one part of it, but it's the non-heightened version is he has to take over for his dad. Yeah. And he might not be up to it. It's right. like not... It is in Jiro Dreams of Sushi, but incredibly subtly done. So subtle. <laughs> because... There's no implication the son is worse other than the fact that everyone would assume he's worse because he's not this guy. Yeah. So you make it that he's a little bit worse. But one, that it's clear that he didn't want to do this. For He actually went to college yeah. and studied improv. <laughs> That's I should know. That is also the most autobiographical part yeah. is that he was at Improv Olympic. And then the other part is that he's afraid of chicken. Yeah. Can you walk me through the steps of that level of escalation to like this is enough that you're like, People will latch onto this as enough for it to be story motivating, but funny enough to be like, oh, we're doing comedy here. Well, you know it's going to be played really straight and really dry. I think that's how it works best. And so I can only tell you that when I came up with the concept that he was afraid of chickens and that was what he had to come over, I felt a great relief. And it was the first time that I thought, oh, this will be, that's the yeah. turn you know and again you can be uh and i you know really do apologize to the listeners of the good one podcast who like to hear one very small joke uh, taken apart and i am talking about a full 20 minute episode what well, i will say as a tangent i feel like i would rank documentary i did best sketches of the years when there's tons of sketch shows on the air and i would put documentary now episodes the ones that felt like there was one clear game and then sort of bigger yeah like the two parts are tends to have a little bit more yeah so i feel like this counts It's just a very long sketch. And, you know, you talk about we have a lot of room because they're 20 minutes long. So if as sort of like in a sketch turn, they have to be a lot faster. We sort of have get to take these giant sort of multi-point turns. With that said, the fact that he's afraid of chickens is a a natural sketch turn within this sort of larger, slower piece. And so also I should point out one of my favorite things and – Really, this episode works because the acting is so great. And I think it's one of Fred's best performances. Yeah. I mean, he's so, you know, one of the things you said about how it's subtle in the documentary, I also think it's fairly subtle in this. You know, people do say he's not as good as a chef, but Fred looks scared the whole episode. Yeah. And Fred knows he's not his father the whole episode. And when Fred talks about how when he was five years old, he got scratched by a chicken and the disease is pollos uh, locos. Like that is such a dumb joke that only works because it's been so serious up to that point. And Fred delivers it like it's a real thing and not a made up disease. Let's talk about the performance part of it. Because I was at the premiere of this. Vulture put it on in some capacity. You sat next to me. And we watched two episodes. We watched this one, the one that was the War Room parody. Yeah. And you would constantly be like, they're so good in this scene. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, what do you feel like a performer actually brings to a thing? I, I, I sometimes think like writing can make something good, but the performer is the person that communicates like something funny is happening. You know, I ultimately feel like I lived through a generation at SNL where performers constantly were elevating the writing. And you learned what performers did because of the necessity of forcing them to do things because they didn't, you didn't have another person. Yeah, you yeah. know, Bill and Fred both had to do so many different things in that era at SNL, maybe, gosh, 06 to 09, where it was a really stripped-down cast. And so 
the amount that they were told on a Thursday, you were going to do an impression of a very famous person that you've never even considered doing an impression of, and you probably are not familiar with who they are to a great deal. So, you know, as uh, as sort of uh, tools in the box, I feel like I know more about uh, Fred and, and Bill's ability, more than maybe anyone, just from doing all those years with them where they had to do stuff. When you write dialogue or you write scenes, do you hear it or see it? Hear it. Yeah. I think I hear it, and then that's why I'm so delighted to see it. Yeah. You know, I've never been on set for an episode of Documentary Now because of uh, hosting a late night show sure, and having yeah. a weird schedule. And so I only get things sent back to me. And, you know, I should also say about Juan in general, like one of the things about this episode was I was really worried it wasn't funny enough and there weren't enough jokes in it. And Reese and Alex, uh, who are really the heart of, Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 brain of this show more than anyone else, they kind of had to keep telling me like, oh no, it's trust us. Like it, what this has that your sketches never had to is there's actually an emotional payoff. Yeah. And and if you, they were they're constantly the ones that are like, don't get desperate, like about your lack of laughs. I want to talk about writing, but I'm going to share sort of two things I know about you. Okay, great. The first is there's a clip that I always think about from the James Franco documentary of it's now, I guess, Wednesday morning. So SNL, they write most of the the shows written Tuesday night. So in this documentary, you've been up all night. You've written, I think, three or four sketches, and it's like 8 o'clock in the morning, and you go to Shoemaker. Should I do that one other one? He goes, I think you've done enough. He's like, it's like how much time you have. You like have an hour. It's like, all right, I'll do it. And you wrote um, the John Malkovich uh, Dangerous Liaisons parody that's sent in a jacuzzi. Yeah. A jacuzzi or whatever. Uh, Jacuzzi. Yes. And then I've also spent day with you when you're doing Closer to Look, which is like inherently a condensed schedule. I also know, because from I remember when I interviewed at Comic-Con, we've talked about how uh, at one time a studio paid you to write a movie. And then you tried and you tried and you had to give the money back because you couldn't do it. Yeah. No, I I, I do just want to clarify because I do... I didn't have to give it back. I uh, insisted they take it back. (laughs) And what I found out from that process was there are so few systems in place in uh, show business to give money back. (laughs) Like the amount my agents and managers would say, hey, we came up with a solution. What if you kept the money but did this? Yeah, did some other way. I don't want to feel bad about this anymore. But but as you said, it's sort of like if you have more time to do something, you just overthink it to a point where you can't do it. So with those two... Extremes. How, how does documentary now, and how does one fit into your as a the most basic of you as a person who can sit down and write something? I mean, I it's not super. E- it's been a totally different muscle. I mean, it's at times it's a sketch, and sometimes you feel like you are writing a screenplay. You know, this year, you know, I wrote this two part episode based on Wild Wild Country. And there was genuine plot thread things that needed to pay off. And and there's a perspective shift within it. So I had to lay things in in the yeah. first episode that paid off. And I should, the worst thing about it was it was due in the uh, two weeks after my second child was born. And so we had a baby that was up all night. My wife would feed him. She'd go back to bed. I would drink Red Bulls and work <laughs> on an episode of Documentary Now before coming to yeah. work on this show. It's the angriest, uh, justifiably so, my wife has ever been uh, at me for what I do for a living. But, as much as I'd love to say, oh, because we have this longer, uh, you know, 
schedule to get these scripts ready, it still ends up, we still end up like jamming them up right up until the deadline. Yeah, I feel like, I can't remember who, but someone's like, Seth wrote that whole thing in a weekend about, about Juan. Yeah. I bet it maybe was Shoemaker because I feel like I was sitting between you and you. He was just like, oh yeah, Seth had to just do it in one go. This was the same way I always felt about sketches, even though in a much more condensed schedule, is I would pretty much spend the whole night at SNL thinking about a sketch and sort of, uh, you know, drawing it out, sketching it out in my mind before yeah. I sat down. Because I'd rather, once I get at the computer, I try to work really, like try to like write with uh, momentum and write downhill. Yeah. And so that's why I try to think as much about it ahead of time. Your ideal is a situation where you only have time where if you wrote it nonstop, so then you, you, you that's the momentum of like, or I, I, I know what the next scene will be, so you just keep on knowing Yes. And so there's a little, I mean, obviously there's more outlining with this than um, with a sketch, but you do still, once you get into it, try to write in a way where you're having enough fun that you can find yeah. things. Uh, let's talk about the Poyos Locos joke. Yes. It's a, such a silly thing that comes after a very long speech about, because he's telling, he's going to lay out why he can't do this. Thing. Yes, why why and he's then, afraid of chicken. And then it's because there's this chicken that we didn't know. He had a brain disease, which a little funny. And then he goes, it's polio locos. And you're like, oh, yes, this is a comedy. Um, right. There's a argument that was like, oh, that undercuts this whole story because. It, right. But what was the mental process of being like, I think polio locos is okay. You know, in my head, I know one, it's in Fred's hands. Yeah. He's not going to tip it at all. Two, it's in Reese and Alex's hands. It's not like they're going to smash cut to it. It's on a single the whole time. Yeah, uh, yeah they don't, you don't cut to a crazy looking chicken. No, you don't, and you don't take a different angle on Fred when he says it. There's no part of it. Like only you as the audience are asked to pull out that that is funny. Yeah. We are not helping you at all. Uh, although I will say, you know, he reveals a scar on his chest. They, called me from Colombia where they shot it and said, hey, because I wrote it to be on his face. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, this whole time, you know, the, basically yeah. the first eight minutes of the episode, you would see that Fred had this scar and you wouldn't know what it came from. And they were, they said, hey, this scar is super distracting. Yeah. And we don't want people to spend the first eight minutes wondering Was why it, we gave we a scar. scar. Yeah. And so, and that's the kind of thing it's great to be partners with guys that you sort of inherently trust and you just immediately give up your idea of the scar joke. Did Fred translate all the stuff into Spanish? That's a good question. I certainly didn't. <laughs> yeah. I feel as though Fred did, but we had somebody down there who was helping. I wanted uh, to ask you a little bit more, another example of sort of how you walked the line. So there's another scene where Juan is talking about how they massage the chicken breast, not for 30 yeah. minutes, not for 45 minutes, and not for an hour, which is like verbatim from Giro yeah. about the... Uh, massaging an octopus. Yeah. And then you go, and then we put into this pressurized cannon or whatever. And yeah. shoot. Again, it's just like walk me through this process and also like how self aware are they supposed to be of how not normal this is? I think they're as exactly as aware of its process as the characters in here at Dreams yeah. of Sushi. Are. They know this is not what other people do. Yeah, but, but they're proud of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do remember this was one of those moments where I was. You know, sometimes when you're writing comedy, you do feel, it's like a runner's high, but yeah. for comedy writing, you feel like a little lightheaded because you're so happy. I mean, one, 
I think we always knew that was, you know, that's a moment you remember from Hero that really makes that such good documentary is, oh, when you walk away from it, there he's the kind of guy who massages the octopus longer. As gross as it is to massage an octopus, like massaging a chicken is grosser. Yes. You know, you just think of salmonella. And then coming up with the idea of a T-shirt cannon was made me just so happy. (laughs) Because, again, it's going to be shot straight. Yeah. And shooting a chicken against the (laughs) wall. And, you know, I should say, you know, we were at that premiere of that episode. You know, this, it is like a little scary as somebody who's written comedy your whole life because there were there were a few really big laughs, which that was. Yeah. And then ultimately you kind of had to wait for the party for how to have people be like, oh, I really love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because otherwise it's not. And, you know, to go back to, um, you know, the, the history of punk, which was the SNL episode that inspired this whole show. Like, I remember the night that that played Lauren asking, like, how is it? And I was. I my basically answer to him was it it's not good it might not be good but I think it's great yeah like in that it's not it might not be good for tonight's show in that I don't think that it's going to in the way a film piece yeah. in the way a Lonely Island piece in the middle of Act Two just like elevates yeah SNL's a live audience and that is the audience that you play to yeah. Most. And you had to be like I think it's we can still do it I was like I think I made you something that uh, will not necessarily help a lot tonight but I think it's going to age very well yeah and I, you had the luxury that you've been there for a million he yeah. trusts you enough where someone else is like no one's gonna laugh now but there's gonna be a bunch of people who will like it a lot later yeah Learn like I don't care about those people. right right <laughs> but for you I you had, had yes exactly I was taking advantage of the uh the carte blanche that I had yeah. earned at that point in my head, it's a theme that comes up a, a, an amount in your work I mean you can tell me it doesn't but I feel like you uh the comedy of elaborate processes. Yeah. <laughs> right? I feel like <laughs> okay. this, because there's this one. There's Daryl's House. Yeah. Which is a sketch you did where the first half of it is a lot of different steps to shoot it, and then you edit it all together. Joke Bucket is a joke. It's a yes. only about elaborate processes. Um, the new uh, documentary episode about the artist yeah. is only that. Yes. So now my theory is correct. Why do you think that's funny? What do you like about these elaborate multi-step things? Well, I certainly like an elaborate multi-step thing that pays off. Yeah. I mean, that ultimately, um, you know, I really I really do like the payoff of the artist episode this year. You know, the f- they're all of different reasons. You know, the reason Joke Bucket is fun it's no part of it is fun for me in the rehearsal. It's way too many moving parts. None of it leads naturally to what's going to happen next. Yeah. You know, when you do a closer look at all, it, yeah. we're trying to make it make as much sense as possible. So it's like reading through an outline. It yeah. should be. Whereas Joke Bucket takes these weird dips and turns each way. And so the fun part of Joke Bucket is that by the time we do it in front of an audience, I have... I know the only way to get through it is to be as giddy and slap happy as possible. Yeah. Whereas I'm mostly angry about it until then. <laughs> Do you do table reads for this? Does the sketch change much? I feel like I've heard you guys say there's not really a rewriting process. No, we've done, like, I would say we've done table reads for half of them. Yeah. Like, one, I think, did get a table read, but of course, I think we did it in English, Mm -hmm. you know, which was we, it's actually seemed a lot worse, you know, because everything that felt authentic and real, like, because, you know, we sort, it's sort of written with pretty simple language because, um, because that's what you wanted people... You're basically writing what you want the subtitles yeah. to be. 
Whereas there's a lyricism to hearing it in another language that was completely lost. And yeah. everybody was sort of doing it with serious uh yeah. And the rhythm accents. of the joke is not how it's going right. to be heard. But I think I heard you guys don't like rewriting because you get a bunch of comedians in a room, you'll then make this have 9,000 jokes. Yes. And that's not what it's supposed to be. No. So more often than not, you will do a table read, all the comedians will pitch jokes, and then you'll sort of sit aside with Reese and Alex, and they'll say, I thought, you know, they'll sort of talk more about the structure and the plot and stuff. (laughs) When I interviewed you one time, I was like, I was asking how your strategy to ending sketches. And you said, there is none, which is a very SNL answer. Yeah. Uh, most people would be like, well, you do this or whatever, but on SNL, you fade out and you clap or whatever. Um, but this episode has a really sweet ending. Most of the episodes you wrote for Documentary Now especially have really nice endings. Yeah. One, why, but also, is it funnier for them to not have a joke ending? I think so. I think that you risk selling it out with a joke at the end, uh, as far as the everything you've put into it up to that point, you know, I will say the first one I wrote was the Grey Gardens parody, Sandy yeah. Passage, and in that, and it was the first idea I had for one of these that it was going to be this cross between Grey Gardens and a found footage horror movie, which is incredibly well executed. But the ending kind of sells out the really up to that point uh, sweet, sad performances yeah, yeah. of Bill and Fred. And so, and it wasn't a lesson I learned until I saw it, yeah. which was, oh, as I, and again, as I was watching it, I had this like pit in my stomach of, oh, I wish I'd <laughs> thought of a different ending that yeah. didn't make them homicidal maniacs. Yeah, yeah. And it was really fun in the writing, but. Once you saw how good it was to see it, you're like, this is more interesting than yes, this funny thing that I wrote. This, like, my sketch writing instincts were not prepared for how good Bill and Fred were going to be as just spending time with them in these characters. And again, obviously, we're, that's built on the back of the incredible work the Maisels brothers did with <laughs> yeah. Grey Gardens. But, you know, that Grey Gardens is great without some wild twist. So I realized that the endings are better served being authentic to the premise than they are to to any sort of like the, the comedy instinct of of having some like sort of yeah. blackouty type ending. And do you feel like it's more natural to you to write a even like some of them are bitter, bittersweet endings, but to essentially write more hopeful endings? Yeah. Although I didn't, as I'm saying this, I didn't fully learn it because Globesman. I think it's a nice ending. It is, but I didn't write it nice. Uh-oh. So. <laughs> Globesman, there's a, which again, because it was a Maisel's Brothers movie, I thought, oh, should it have a similar, um, like, dark ending? And in Globesman, there, we lay in that there's sort of an Atlas salesman Mm -hmm. who's this German Atlas salesman. They just talk about him. He's never seen. It was originally written for him to add, like, have this nice ending and then him to, like, Tebow in their car. Got it. And if you watch the end of Glowsman, there's a car that tails them away. And if you, the vanity license plate, I think is like Atlas or Easter egg. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm so, again, and Bill actually called me, I should say, and said, Hey, we're shooting this. Fred's really good. It will be such a bummer if we die in the end. And so, uh, we never shot the car crash. It was like, Oh great. Good to know. So you didn't, as you mentioned, you didn't go to Columbia to film this. Also, it should be noted that the plan was for it to be Cuba. Yep. But then Obama was going to Cuba. The Obamas went to Cuba and they pulled everybody's visas. So still, still pretty upset. But I was thinking about a quote that I believe Neil Brennan, your friend, said yeah. to John Mulaney, your friend, which is uh, why writers become directors. And he's like, to be, I, I'm not to be a director, but to be a protector. The yeah. idea that like, if you give your writing to people, 
they're going to make it not what you wanted. And obviously, these are people you trust incredibly, yeah. but they are not you. Yeah. How much do you care about the material beyond when you write it? Like, are you like, I did my job of it, and then these people are going to add? Like, do you care? Oh, I would have done that line reading differently. Even if you like what they do, is your brain being like, there's so few times where I see something. I mean, I think that uh, I have a shorthand for the way Bill and Fred act. I think that Alex and Reese have a, a shorthand might not be the right word, but they have a sense of the way I write. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are times where I'll watch a cut that comes back. And as I'm watching it, I'll think this is a pure ego comment, but I will watch and I'll think, oh, I wish there was a line here and here mm-hmm. and here. And then I'll go back and read the script and I'm like, oh, I wrote every one of those lines <laughs> that I missed. And then I'll call them and be like, hey, did you shoot those? And they'll say, yeah, it was just long. And I will make them put everything back Got in. It, so yeah. it's not as though we always line up. But uh, and there are times where they'll say to me, oh, you know, because, again, you know, there are other uh, parts cast that are not Bill and Fred. And uh, sometimes they'll say, yeah, to be honest, like that, we never really got what we wanted from them. Whereas we never don't get what we want from Bill and Fred. And so I'll say, can I see it? And and whenever I see it, I realize, oh, yeah, they just didn't. It wasn't quite right. Um, How did you learn to accept that you're never going to? You know, there's the writers that want to have control over things, but you you don't seem to be that person. I, well, I mean, again, I should know. This is not my only job. Yes, documentary now. I have another job where I cannot stress to you how much control yeah, I have. Yeah, fair. So I think that, you know, this is, this is the job where you get to, like, just give away control. Yeah. And that is so... Uh, I mean, it's such a good feeling, especially when, you know, time and time again, it comes back to you better than you could have imagined. So I know Lauren's seen this episode because he was in the room when I oh, watched yeah. it. Oh, yeah. That's the only way to confirm it. <laughs> yes. The only way to confirm it is to have eyes on him. That's, seen that's it. why. Yeah. Do you, has he said anything about this one or any of the documentary now episodes? No. Okay. I think the short answer is no. I think that we every now and then. Uh, he'll say, oh, I saw a clip that somebody sent him and they thought it was really funny. I uh, don't, yeah, I can't, but no, this is in the things we've talked about. Like when it's one of those things where you say, well, he's like, they're so funny. Bill and Fred are so funny. And, yeah. and that's, you know, you could, if you could probably come up with that if you hadn't seen it. Sure. But there's also, uh, you also would say it if you had. How do you feel about the show's pretentiousness? Like the, how pretentious we are to have how, made it. How pretentious you are to make it, how pretentious of an idea it is, how... It, it, which is, this is, I'm not saying that to me, pretentious is not a pejorative, but I feel yeah. like to you, it is not, not a pejorative. Like, you've talked a lot about the seriousness in comedy, and that is a thing that you've. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, how do you feel about the pretentiousness of this show? How's I will say it's, the, it's one of the few things I do where I don't. There are people where if they mention it to me, like, oh, I can't wait to watch it, I would think in my head, it's not for you. <laughs> so, I guess that's a pretty pretentious yeah. uh, point of view to have. Who's it for? Who watches it? I don't know how many people stumble into it blindly. You know what I mean? Like, it is sold. Every part of it is, you know, from the opening credit package to Helen Mirren to the first shot of every episode. I can't imagine who's sticking around much longer if it doesn't grab them right away. Do you give any consideration for people who haven't seen the documentaries? I think most of them stand on their own. I think it's better if you've seen the documentary. I hope that uh, people 
a lot of times people will sort of say to me on Twitter that they had not seen, you know, they saw Sandy Passages first and then saw Grey Gardens, um, which is, I think, a perfect outcome. Yeah. Because I would like everybody. I mean, there's none of these uh, are based on documentaries we don't think you should see. But we try very hard to not be, oh, this is a parody of a thing. And that goes back to stuff like, uh, you know, not to go back to the beginning, but like I think that Girls parody and I think that Louis parody are not based on inside jokes. Yeah. It's based on style more yeah. than the inside joke. Preparing for this, I, I consumed a lot of interviews with you. And as the person who coined the term clapter, do you ever get, you know, sort of bummed out how seriously people take you? Like, and try to be as, I just feel like you have so much silly work. Yeah. That is not discussed as much. Right. What is the feeling you have about it? Like, obviously you appreciate people caring about whatever. Sure. But, you know... If you, in my head, if you died, no one's going to be like, and he did John Ham's John Ham or whatever. Right. <laughs> how do you, so how do you feel about it? Because this joke, this this thing has a lot of silly moments, in, but it's also like heartfelt. And I imagine most people are like, oh, it's great that he has that side of him. But what about the Polo Locos, Polo Locos side of you? I think there's obviously at SNL because of your sketch, your name's not on a lot of sketches. There are things that if it weren't for people like you, nobody would know that I yeah. wrote John Hamm's John <laughs> Hamm. Uh, although I, I really want to give a quick tip of my cap to Michael Buble, mm-hmm. who had a Super Bowl ad that was uh, referenced the fact that his name was Bubbly. And in multiple interviews, he referenced the fact that I had, I was oh, like, wow. oh, what a gentleman. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, you know, it's really, it reminds me of this really funny sketch that Seth Meyers wrote. And I, I only say that because I don't think there are a lot of SNL hosts or musical guests out there name checking the writers yeah, of yeah. the pieces. So a <laughs> yeah. uh, real shout out to my, uh, one of my favorite people from our Northern uh, neighbor. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't bum me out. I mean, I worry that people will take any comedians yeah. too seriously, but I also, you know, I don't think you can overlap comedy at this moment with comedy at any other time because we are, you know, it is, we're making, everybody's making the comedy that's uh, appropriate for this moment. Yeah. And and obviously I'm referring to the political comedy that's going on right now. But, um, you know, when this, uh, as with every political moment, when this one comes to the end, I'm also obviously really happy that <laughs> yeah. my, my initial setting is far serious, uh, far sillier, yeah, I should yeah. say, than the one we're living in. Um, you've always said that the being the title of head writer of SNL is the title you're most proud of. The other day, someone asked me if I could ever write a piece that like defined the eras by their head writers, and I sort of was like, it'd be hard. But do you feel like there was a sensibility for your time or a non-sensibility? And do you feel like, as a person who's also just a fan of SNL, do you feel like? There are ideologue head writers, and you are were or were not such. I don't know. I mean, I I think that my you know the way I went into being a head writer was to you know try really hard to uh, communicate anything Lauren said to people more kindly than Lauren said it to sure. me, and more I and, and hopefully more constructive yeah. than Lauren had said it to me. And then also though you know I I was there at a time where there were so many singular voices. And so as a head writer, you know, I there wasn't, it wasn't like when Will Forte wrote something, you would say like, let me tell you what we need it to <laughs> yeah. be more of, Will. Let me tell you what SNL, because I think that the reason that that era thrived was because there were so many people that had not been an SNL it didn't. There were voices that didn't exist at SNL uh, beforehand. So it, all you just tried to do was like just make if, sure they're true to the voice. Yeah, and just were. clear the snow. Yeah, but it's just like just be a snowplow every now and then. But it wasn't as though so. It wasn't like many of them needed uh, 
needed my help. So you wrote Juan Rice Likes Rice and Chicken. You also wrote the season's homage to Marina Abramovich. Yeah. So here, people creating things with different frames. Do you feel more like Juan or more like Kate Blanchett's character, Isabella, in sort of your the way you view your art or craft? I feel more like Arturo. Sure. Yeah, I feel, <laughs> I mean, I think I feel the most like Fred's character in Juan. I am aware, I am in awe of the best I am lucky to be, uh, I've, I've luckily spent a lot of my career near them. Mm-hmm. I want to make uh, things as well as they do, and I appreciate how much effort needs to go into that. Would you rather? Would you prefer to write and not perform or perform and not write? Because you, 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 you have a true have-your-cake-eat-it-too situation yeah. in your life, but let's say you did not. Yeah. Imagine that life. What would you prefer? How would you be That's if you question. had one? I mean, because they're, you know... In the same year, I can have a situation where I, you know, the first time I watched um, Waiting for the Artist with, you know, Kate Blanchett did an episode of the show and I got to write something for yeah. Kate Blanchett and that's sort of beyond my wildest dreams. And uh, the endorphin release I had the first time I saw it was uh, great. I, you know, I compare that to going out and doing a Golden Globes monologue where, you know, a great many of those jokes were not written by me. And that's also great so it's a i do i do have the best of both worlds i think that if i had to choose like what i think would be the long-term success i mean it would be i don't know i don't know i would be sad never to write anything (laughs) (laughs) so that sound means uh it's time for our final segment which is the laughing round it's like a lightning round but because it's comedy it's like a it's a laughing round um (laughs) Is there a sketch you wish you wrote in a way that it's a new dimension where this sketch was a sketch that you wrote and your life is almost exactly the same except for you wrote this sketch or a series of sketch? I would be really proud to tell people that I wrote MacGruber, <laughs> like MacGruber sketches. Yeah. I think that in as far as sketches from my era um, that I go back and watch, that's right up there. Either that or that if I had written one digital short, I wish it was uh, Two Worlds Collide, yeah. where um, Keenan plays Reba. You're a fan of SNL. Many times we talk, we just talk about SNL, which is very cute of you. <laughs> so there was a host this season I really wanted to get your opinion on. Yeah. Um, his name was <laughs> Seth Meyers. Yeah. How do you think he did? Uh, I think he did fine. I think he was... Uh, I felt for the writing staff because... I used to, uh, before I was a head writer on the show, and I got to write for everybody, and before I was on Weekend <laughs> Update, and I got to do that every yeah. week, one of my main jobs was figuring out how to write for Seth Meyers on SNL. Yeah. It was not super easy. Like, things didn't naturally present themselves as, as things only Seth Meyers could do. Um, uh, so I thought they I thought they did a good job, and I thought I did about what, uh, what could be expected of me. Did you go in being like, I'm just going to be here as a performer, I'm not going to go in... I went in, you know, I thought, oh, I'll write my monologue. And I did foolishly think I'd write one or two other things. And uh, I was uh, deathly ill. And also I forgot how busy a host is. Like, And the most hilarious thing about the week for me is how I was caught off guard. I thought I was there for 12 and a half years. There's no part of this that I don't know how it is. And I did not know what it was like to be a host. I feel like we've talked before and you're like, I'll never host. I fully never thought I'd host. I, I should say, and and this will, when I said, when Lauren asked me and I said yes, uh, he, I'm not joking when he said, oh, thank God, we've so many people have backed out. 
I was going to ask that, but I did not want to say it on the record if it was not true. Um, of the season or so, do you have a recent sketch that you just like? Oh, gosh. I'm going to have to think on it. I will say one thing I remember. You told me you liked it. I thought it was so fun. You liked the Gemma sketches. Oh, I love the Gemma sketches. <laughs> I think Gemma, I, w- I regret that I didn't even have my head on right to say to Cecily, like, I'd like to be in a Gemma sketch. I think Gemma is one of the most fully formed observations. Yeah. What is a dream Light Night with Seth Meyers lineup after the closer, like, whatever? So now you're doing the rest of the episode. Who are yeah. your guests? One, first act, second act, third act. Who are my dream? I mean, I, I as far as people who've been on before? Or yeah, you can do whatever now? you want. Okay. You could be dead alive, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I always say uh, my favorite dead guest would be Benjamin Franklin. I think that he would be, I, I would just, I think he's both, uh, you know, obviously a brilliant person, but I also think maybe a little bit of a dirty dog. Mm-hmm. I think he would have like good stories about drinking. Um, so we'll start with Benjamin Franklin. Um and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with that. I'm gonna have Joan Rivers back in the show. She was one of my favorite guests that I ever had, and uh, just jokes. All she did was tell jokes. Yeah. And and then uh, for my third guest, I'm gonna have uh, Joel Edgerton. Is one of my favorite guests on the show. All right. Joel Edgerton is the most affable man I have ever spoken to. Be as a comedian who's interviewed uh, by political people a lot, you get a lot of people calling sketches skits. Yeah. I'm giving you an opportunity to either right now rant against people doing that or rant against people who care too much about that. I think it's great because I think the minute someone calls him a skit, uh, you just just get to dismiss their opinion <laughs> in a way that I find very freeing. You know, it's interesting. Like even when people like police racist language, you that you don't want to get to a place where people aren't going to tip their racism to yeah. you you know like let's let's let That's them funny, let's yeah. give them the room to let us know who they are because otherwise we got to spend the rest of our lives just wondering trying to pick it up off facial cues do you think there'll be in your lifetime more seasons of documentary now or second chance theaters we're doing a second chance theater so tomorrow. that'll make four that'll make four <laughs> and, and so i at think almost one a year rate yes but we're starting to get a little traction on second chance theater the last time will ferrell was here and again, I only worked with Will Ferrell for one year, so yeah. um, friendly more than friends, whereas everybody who's done Second Chance Theater so far is a friend. And Will, the last time he was here, said, how come you guys haven't asked me? And that opens up a real, mm-hmm. that's like, I mean, we struck oil. Because yeah. I think maybe no one will have more enjoyable to watch Second Chance Theaters than Will. Because again, they have to be brilliant failures. They can't just be duds. Yes, and he is, that is like the thing that he's famous for. He'll give his all to all of them. Yeah, and they're all, like, they're all things that when you explain to people, they laugh when they hear the premise. Yeah. Whereas a lot of things that bombed, like, didn't even have that going for him. Yeah, the ones you've done, you're like, yeah. it's not really a full <laughs> premise. You know, so we one time talked, and very extensively, about Lonely Island. Yeah. Uh, where you said all your favorite ones, and it was a whole big bracket. And I feel like you find opportunities to say things you've liked about Bill and Fred, but you've worked with a lot of people. So this is a true lightning round style. I'm just going to name people and you can say their favorite thing. And you can say pass if nothing comes to your head. Okay, gotcha. Kristen. Kristen Wiig? Yeah. Kristen had so many characters that were obviously mind-blowingly great. But the amount, I think, of this um, character she did who said, Thomas! (laughs) I don't even remember. I can't remember. Thomas! And I, th- I, every time I meet someone named Thomas, I think of uh, Trina is the character's name. I, I invite you to go back and watch some Trina sketches. Horatio Sands. My first table read for SNL was September 
let's say, 25th, 26th um, of 2001. Mm -hmm. This is two weeks after 9-11. And it was uh, the most dour table read uh, that I've ever been a part of. And the only uh, time I laughed was uh, at two different Horatio uh, mm-hmm. sketches. One, uh, Reese Witherspoon was the host and she brought home Horatio was her prom date. He was a Mexican wrestler named El Chupacabra. And he, throughout the sketch, he kept admitting he was older than he had told her, but it kept going up. Uh, and there was another sketch where he played a guy at a mall who had a, a cart and his name was Custard Carlos. Mm-hmm. And he kept having to go underneath to fix the custard machine. And you couldn't tell if he was fixing it or just taking a shit in a <laughs> custard cup. Uh, and it was just my, I remember we were all laughing to her crying because everyone was trying to figure out how to write two weeks after 9-11. And Horatio decided I'm going to write exactly the way I did two weeks before 9-11. <laughs> uh, Vanessa Bayer. Her ability to be both big and small at the same time because she has like a face that just reflects all the comedy light. And yeah. so she can show you so many things there. And her ability to make just so much out of out of very little of of dialogue. Uh, Bobby uh, enthusiasm. Bobby was so great and everything, and also then so grateful. I think maybe the most grateful person any of us had ever written for. His ability afterwards to find you and thank you. I wrote this. Oh, this is another parody. I just remembered. I wrote a thing called The Sopranos. Oh, yeah, yeah, the high school one. High school Sopranos. Oh, that's really good. Uh, that Bobby is just great in. And uh, it just—he always talked as though I had done it for him as like a birthday present. Will Forte. If you take like the sonic range that people can talk at, I think there are different comedians who are like good at either side of the range. Like Vanessa is very good quiet. Yeah. Um, Will Ferrell is very good loud. Will Forte is both the funniest, loudest comedian you've ever heard, and the funniest, quietest comedian you've ever heard. Like he would, like he's both yeah. Zell Miller and Tim Calhoun, in the middle, so mediocre. Yeah, <laughs> the only loud or quiet. Just like his, and and like even like the genius of MacGruber is he is a, he you know his serious moments he's very quiet, yeah. and then in his crazy moments he's very loud. Nassim. Nassim was so committed to making it better each time she did it. Like, that was my thing about comedian. From, like, table read to dress to air, you always had this confidence that, oh, you have not, like, her ability to refine it down to its best moments would uh, would always come through. Rachel Dratch? The kindness involved. Rachel Dratch and I sat next to each other at table read for probably about five years, and she was such a fun person to sit next to while she reacted to comedy. Um, the amount she would go, like, oh! <laughs> if something made her laugh, she would laugh so hard. Um, and for her last show, we uh, one of the things we wrote together was where she played Abe Scheinwald, the very old um, Hollywood producer that ate coleslaw. And I did not tell her that for her last table read, I had written one. It was like my goodbye sketch to her. <laughs> and I had her glasses and coleslaw with me. And so when she turned the page, I, I would I would sometimes do this where I dummy a sketch where the first mm-hmm. page seemed like one thing and then you turn the page and realize what it was. And uh, I just will, I'll never forget handing her coleslaw and saying, I think you're going to need this. Keenan. I feel like we're in this really nice time right now where uh, Keenan is finally like properly valued. Yeah, I wonder how that started. I know. 
<laughs> we we put in our we put in our hours, Jesse. Yeah, yeah. uh, one of the things, one of the funniest things Keenan ever did that was not something that would uh, that was part of the show is Keenan watched the show Entourage. I did not. <laughs> And on Monday, I would just ask Keenan in front of everybody to tell us what happened in Entourage. <laughs> and Keenan, in a very like flat tone, would just give a very. Keenan has a, I would argue, maybe a photographic memory. Keenan yeah. remembers more about sketches I wrote than I do. And so well, listening to Keenan talk about Entourage is one of my favorite things. Here's some writers. What's your favorite James Anderson sketch? <sighs> Which is very important because I feel like people don't know what James Anderson sketches yeah. are. Yeah. Except for like, oh, the, I think he wrote that gay one. But other than that, but he also like writes really absurd ones. Yeah. Uh, my Gucci boots. I mean, the one he did with Gosling, the jazz singer he's done with Gosling. But I mean, there's so many. I mean, you know, James, when you go back and watch Deep House Dish, it's incredible how stupid those songs are. There's a Ryan Reynolds uh, Deep House Dish song where it's just about him updating his Facebook status that... um it's canon. Anytime I interview, I like to force you to take credit for things you don't want to take credit for. Okay, great. So you co-wrote Co-op with John Mulaney. Yes, but it's it's so much more in Mulaney. I know, which me. everyone assumes it's the Mulaney's thing, but you have a credit for it. So yes. You must have done something. Yes. What did you do? I wrote the lyrics to a song called uh, uh, Cocaine Tonight. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm Joe, of course you know. I don't I know why I'm telling you so. I just got here and grabbed a beer. Are people singing or is it clear? To be stunning as your nose running out and get my tissue as it's an issue. If I come clean, don't start a scene. I can get some. Wow. Yes. And uh, and then I talked to Mulaney uh, on the phone once. We had taught, we knew we were going to do that episode. I believe I came up with the title co-op. Wow. Because we were talking about different titles. Um, now, I should say, like, I didn't, I came up with the title co-op because I wanted to see what Mulaney would like I yeah. was just like I was I knew Mulaney was gonna yeah it's such a Mulaney yeah so it was like hey here's go I was like make me co-op <laughs> it's well it's like your your head writer instinct <laughs> so you're a head writer you've people talk about how good you are at improving people's things um so I have Eight of my tweets from okay. last month. I'm going to show great. you. Pick any one. Uh-huh. Read the original tweet and then write what your improvement of it would be. Okay, great. So, wow, these are really pretty perfect. <laughs> oh, thanks. That's a real goal. Be like, oh, I guess these are really the great joke writer in the mix. Duck season, rabbit season, duck season, rabbit season, pilot season. Um, yeah, I mean, how do you fix that? <laughs> Okay, well, I might have some questions, but one thing that's absolutely fucking sick about hip hotels (laughs) is that you have to wear a full tuxedo with tails when you go down to the lobby to get a pen, or else they will murder your family (laughs) in front of you. I don't really even track that. What brought that about? So, you ever go to these hip hotels? Yeah. You have to dress up. So, in my head, if you stay at a normal hotel, you can go down in basketball shorts or whatever. When you go to these nice hotels, people are mingling about. Gotcha. I will say that tweet, I was like, this is not my voice, but I was like, let me try out where I'm much more accurate. Yeah, and not a lot of traction for you on this one? okay. Okay, did okay. Like seven or so people got it. Other things. I mean, it did a lot better than duck season, rabbit season, duck season, rabbit season, pilot season. See, that doesn't seem right. (laughs) I mean, how many hams could John Ham's hamstring string if John's ham's hamstring could string hams is, you know... 
You can't improve that. The question I had would be John Ham String. Oh, how many hams could John, John Ham String string if John Ham String could string ham? No, or, you need or John Ham Strings, like just no. make John. How many? Sh- <laughs> I think you got him. I think you nailed all these. <laughs> then which one's your favorite? And then read it out loud. <laughs> I think I've read my favorites. Please don't read. Make me read my fourth favorite. I don't think <laughs> that's, that's fine. That's yeah. fine. You've done so much already. <laughs> uh, all right, that's it. All right, yeah. thanks, buddy. That's it for another episode of Good One. Documentary Now Season 3 premieres February 20th on IFC. You can watch old episodes, including Juan Likes Rice and Chicken, on Netflix. Late Night with Seth Meyers airs weeknights on NBC. Follow Seth on Twitter, at Seth Meyers. Good One is produced by Mike Comite. English dubs for Documentary Now clips were done by Mike Comite and Jacob Tender. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them what the heck. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.